0: In late December of 2019, medical officials began noticing several mysterious cases of pneumonia which were occurring in Wuhan, China. As they began to investigate, a single pattern started to emerge. In every case, those who had become sick had visited what is commonly referred to as a wet market, or a market where live animals are sometimes killed and butchered in front of customers, who believe that the taste of fresh meat was better than that of meat that had been previously butchered or frozen. In early January of 2020, Chinese authorities determined a novel coronavirus from the same family of viruses that caused Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, known as MERS, in 2012 and Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or SARS, in 2002, was responsible for the illnesses. Officials believe the virus originated from bats and evolved over time to infect humans. At first, it was believed the virus was not easily transmittable to humans or that it was capable of causing severe illness. However, on January 11, 2012, China reported its first death associated with the virus. Two days later, the first case of the illness was reported outside of China, and just one week after that, the first case in the United States was reported in Washington state. By January 30th, just one month after the disease was first reported in China, the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency. By early February, additional deaths were being reported in countries outside of China, and the first death attributed to COVID-19 in the United States was reported on February 29th. The virus spread incredibly quick, ferociously infecting countries like Italy, Iran, and Spain. On March 11th, the World Health Organization officially declared COVID-19 a global pandemic. Throughout March and April, cases continued to spread rapidly in the United States, resulting in most states issuing shelter-in-place orders, shuttering all non-essential businesses, and effectively bringing the U.S. economy to a grinding halt. Amid the chaos and panic of the pandemic, several conspiracy theories started to emerge. Some of those theories had to do with the origin of the virus, as some believed the virus had been leaked, either intentionally or accidentally, from a research lab in Wuhan, China. Other theories focused more on the purpose of the virus, with some convinced that the virus was a way to interfere with the 2020 US election. One of the more popular conspiracy theories that was floated identified billionaire and Microsoft founder Bill Gates as being the creator or the expediter of the virus. Proponents of this theory cited a 2015 speech made by Gates where he warned that a virus would one day threaten the human race. They believe Gates created COVID-19 so he could profit from the vaccine, or as a way to reduce the population, or as a way to inject people with tracking devices, depending on the different versions of the theory. A tweet on January 21, 2020, indicated Gates must have known of the virus ahead of time, as his foundation had given money to a laboratory in the United Kingdom that had been working on a coronavirus vaccine. Although this claim was found to be true, the vaccine being developed was intended for poultry, as chicken populations can be especially susceptible to coronaviruses. Some related theories suggested Bill Gates was part of an elite group of individuals who were attempting to take over the world through nefarious means. Another popular conspiracy theory claimed that radio waves from newly installed 5G towers across the world were potentially infecting people with the virus or causing immune system issues to hinder the body's ability to adequately fight the disease. Several social media posts promoted this theory, as did some celebrities. A Belgian doctor even stated that the radio waves were harmful to humans and indicated a, quote, possible link with current events. By early April 2020, people in Belfast, Northern Ireland, Birmingham, England, and Liverpool, England, had set fire to some 5G towers believing they were harmful to public health. As COVID-19 continues to threaten vulnerable populations around the globe, more and more extreme theories continue to emerge in an attempt to explain the frightening chain of events that's taken place in the last six months. Governments continue to try to respond to the public health crisis as swiftly and competently as possible, some adopting strict measures that many argue vastly curtail the fundamental constitutional rights of citizens. As people here in the United States become more and more angry with the tactics adopted to fight the virus, they are also becoming increasingly anxious with what is sure to be the social and economic fallout from the measures. As the days pass, people feel less and less in control of their own lives, as even our elected leaders seem to be lost in the mire of COVID 19 confusion. This episode is about conspiracy theories.
1: Hello, and welcome to Psychology After Dark, the podcast where we explore the dark side of the human condition. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica McCono.
0: And Dr. David Morelos. So, David. Yeah.
1: The last couple of episodes, we've talked about topics that relate to the current pandemic, but we haven't had an episode where we spoke about the pandemic itself.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: And that is until this episode. I had been wanting to do an episode on conspiracy theories for a while, and this seemed like the perfect time.
0: Definitely the perfect time. I'm always the one that wants to shy away from sort of current events because they can become very politicized. But I think in this case, we kind of had to talk about what's going on.
1: It's almost like the elephant in the room, I feel like.
0: There's no question. I mean, everybody has been affected by this in some way, shape, or form. Yes. So I guess we'll start off by talking about conspiracies and what they are in a general sense. Sounds good. Okay, so I wanted to start off by talking about uh, one particular article that was on a website called Very Well Mind um, that was written by a woman named Kendra Cherry, and it was entitled, Why People Believe in Conspiracy Theories. This was dated April 8th, 2020, so very recently this was written. I like this article because it was well-researched, and it had a lot of references to articles that were peer-reviewed and the like— And again, it's a recent article, so the research was pretty up to date. This also makes reference to another research study that was a meta-analysis. And for those uh, out there who don't know what a meta-analysis is, it's where they take a whole bunch of different studies and sort of combine them, correct?
1: Yeah, they analyze them, they look for... um, Trends. Trends, right.
0: Right, and talking points, things that come up over and over again. So while it wasn't based on an original research study, it was a number of articles, scholarly articles and studies that were sort of analyzed all at once and then put together. And so that's what this article here is kind of condensing into one particular article to hash out what the major points are. So this article makes a number of interesting points that I wanted to highlight and discuss as for reasons why people often believe in conspiracy theories in the contemporary age. So first off, and this is a direct quote from the article, A conspiracy is defined as the belief that there are groups that meet in secret to plan and carry out malevolent goals. So that means that groups of people are getting together and they have sort of dark intentions.
1: That seems to be a pretty common theme in most conspiracy theories.
0: Sure. That's basically where I believe most conspiracy theories are going. Is that there's a group of people out there, they're all in cahoots and they want to do us harm. So this brings to mind a lot of different groups that we've all probably heard of in the past. For me, this could be like a secret organization that is relatively well known and talked about, like Skull and Bones, the secret society at Yale, or a group like the Freemasons, you know, something on a much larger scale. These are just a couple of examples of groups linked to a lot of conspiracies that I've heard about. So, quick story, the Masons and the Mason conspiracies always kind of humor me, if only because I was something called a Demolay growing up, which I think I've talked about in the past, on this show. This was an organization founded by a Mason to prep young men to become Masons after they turned 21. So, like the Masons, Demolays, named after Jacques Demolay, who was a Knights Templar, also had secret rituals that were part of the meetings and so on. So, out of respect for the organization, I won't get into what those rituals were, so don't ask Jessica.
1: Darn, I was totally going to ask. <laughs>
0: Other than to say that they were very innocuous. There was nothing nefarious about the organization whatsoever, I can attest to that. So, even the Boy Scouts have had much more public scandal than Demolay ever has. That's saying something, since the Boy Scouts were widely regarded as probably one of the most wholesome organizations in the country until recently, when news of young boys being preyed upon sexually came to light. So as far as I know, there was never any kind of scandal like that in Malay. and again, we were tied to the Masons and other Masonic organizations, which are often the subject of conspiracy theories. At any rate, knowing the Masons that I knew back then, including many who were fathers and relatives of D. Malay's that I was friends with, it's kind of ridiculous to me to think that a bunch of older men who might ride around in little go-karts, which were called Rumblebees, by the way, those were the Shriners, (laughs) right? and spent a great deal of time trying to live a life of service to the community, including things like providing free medical care to anyone who couldn't afford it, would somehow be behind some of the greatest conspiracies in the world involving Nazis, presidential assassinations, and even gray aliens. Whoa, man. That's out there, even for a fringe guy like myself.
1: Yeah, I would agree. That's pretty out there.
0: Anyway, there were some friends of mine back then that I wanted to get into the organization but whose parents strictly forbid it because of what I would call conspiratorial beliefs they had regarding Masonic organizations. According to the Very Well-Mined article, there are three basic reasons why people buy into conspiracy theories. These are a need to understand something that may be complex, a need to feel in control, and a need to belong to something or feel special in some way. So let's look at these each a bit more closely. The first, a need to understand, is something interesting to me. I remember back in a mythology and ancient literature class that I took in college, it was always a more basic theory that myths were written in the style they were, with larger-than-life and supernatural characters and epic battles and so forth, as a way to contextualize occurrences that were taking place in the natural world, such as weather, animal behavior, celestial events, and so forth. Obviously, our ancestors who lived in pre-modern times did not have the scientific basis of understanding that we do now. So it was commonly believed that they made up stories to explain what was happening around them. Fast forward to today, and we seem to have something like this idea working in the form of conspiracies, especially as it pertains to large-scale events. Large-scale events... Something, say, like the 9-11 attacks, often contain a complex narrative with many interlocking pieces that have to be put together methodically. But many times we as so-called rational people get very impatient while waiting for empirical evidence, the discovery of which can be a very slow process. So our minds start working. We hear rumors. We start drawing connections. We hit the internet and we do some amateur sleuthing, so to speak. We want to understand these events now. And sometimes we make leaps of logic that are fueled by the desire to know and understand something that eludes us. This desire also often gets hijacked by a number of our prejudices along the way. An example of this was when everybody was quick to believe that Muslim extremists bombed the Alfred Murrah building in Oklahoma City in 1995, before it was revealed that the terrorist was actually a Caucasian American. So there is this divide, especially when simple explanations seem inadequate or when there is a level of distress and uncertainty, such as times we are living in right now. Now, Kendra Cherry and the Very Well-Mined article also make an interesting point about education levels and conspiracy thinking. They state that lower educational status tends to increase the likelihood that people will subscribe to conspiracy theories, which is in part due to what they call, quote, lower analytical abilities. So again, this is how the article puts it, but I wanted to make the statement that Jessica and I are not educational elitists by any stretch. No. There are a number of people whose intelligence I deeply respect who have very little formal education. I think formal education can be a sign of intelligence, but I don't always believe that that's the case. So there's that. But what I think the author of this article is trying to say is that a formal education can help someone become a much more critical thinker in the sense that when you pursue a formal education, you will probably come across concepts like confirmation bias, which is something that I had to address when doing my research for my PhD. Essentially, this is simply the idea that we all carry bias with us to some extent for whatever reason. In formal research, bias can contaminate the validity of a study if it's found that someone may have unconsciously, or even consciously, cherry-picked evidence to support their own hypothesis or pet theory. This actually happens quite a bit in scholarly research because it's such a large part of who we are as living, breathing people. We carry bias and prejudice around with us many times without even knowing it. And this translates into scholarly work as well. To combat this, formal research is often peer-reviewed, and researchers are trained to be on the lookout for when they might be falling into this trap. But this is generally something that is taught through formal education. So this is what I think the author is saying here. Scholars and those who are familiar with how formal research is done tend to have a better understanding of how we arrive at fact through a logical process that includes an awareness of bias. Arguably, a lot of people who, while definitely intelligent, probably are not trained to be this aware of their own bias when seeking answers for an emotionally distressing large-scale event like a pandemic or a terrorist attack. And so the response tends to be more emotional in nature and less analytical. Again, this is not to suggest that anyone is stupid or anything like that. So I will say, however, that friends of mine who generally don't have a formal education tend to be much more sure of their positions and theories than I am, generally speaking. And they tend to have very concrete sort of black and white answers for things that can sometimes seem simplistic. That isn't to say that they're wrong necessarily, as many times they may be right. I have no idea. But sometimes the answers just don't resonate with me because they're overly political, or they're one-sided and obviously rooted in some kind of personal bias. So education correlates a good deal with higher analytical ability. Because of this, Kendra Cherry argues, people who are not as analytically inclined can have a less tolerance for uncertainty. This, in turn, leads to conspiracy theories as people grasp at explanations for things.
1: And often, I think conspiracy theories kind of tie everything up into a nice little bow. Sure. Right? It's like, this is what's happening, and that's that.
0: Yeah, and they generally assume the worst of people. You ever notice that sort yeah. of trend?
1: Yeah, that that's a good point.
0: Yeah. So those are what Cherry and other researchers of this topic refer to as epistemic reasons, meaning... The study of how we derive knowledge and how we validate it. So if you hear the term epistemology, that's what they're referring to, is how we derive knowledge and how we validate that knowledge. So next up is what they call the existential reason. We are drawn to conspiracies relating to our existence. These reasons include the desire and need to feel safe and in control. This can be a drive for conspiracy theories because it can help alleviate these negative feelings of being unsafe or out of control if we believe we know what's happening and what's caused it. This can lead some people to assign meaning and draw connections where there may be none. They do it to feel like they know what they're up against, so to speak. Conspiracies tend to spring up a lot within people who experience a lot of anxiety issues, again, as a way to help explain what they're feeling.
1: Well, and I think anxiety pops up when people feel out of control. And so, like you said, conspiracy theories can help people feel like they can make sense of things and thereby potentially reduce anxiety. And it's interesting because you said, you know, a lot of conspiracies assume the worst in people. So I wonder if at the end of the day, those beliefs in conspiracy theories really do even decrease anxiety.
0: Yeah, that's part of this article. As a matter of fact, and we'll get to that sort of at the end here, but that's one of the points that they make is that people latch onto conspiracy theories in an attempt to feel better when in fact conspiracy theories usually do the opposite.
1: Huh, interesting.
0: They make us feel less in control of our lives. Yeah, yeah. So... At any rate, this is an interesting concept, if only because I've run into something like this a great deal in my work helping those with substance abuse issues. For instance, men, when they are dealing with a problem such as a substance abuse problem, they tend to look outside of themselves for solutions. Generally speaking, most men will try to do something like move from one city to another, they'll try to change jobs, careers, girlfriends or wives, and so on, as if something outside of themselves is what is responsible for their own choice to abuse drugs or alcohol. While these changes may be helpful, only the realization that it is something internal, not external, that needs to be changed will help them create the long-term, sustainable change that they are truly looking for. It's a very nice belief, that moving cities will somehow alleviate your drug problem, but generally speaking it simply isn't true. That's only part of the problem. The lion's share of the problem rests in what is going on internally in your mind as to why and how you make choices to engage in the behaviors you do. But that doesn't stop people from trying things like changing jobs. The same seems to be true here. Someone is dealing with anxiety so their first instinct is to look outside of themselves for answers. Well, I must feel this way because of the liberal elite pedophile cabal or the Zionist banking conspiracy or whatever. There is a desire to grasp at reasons outside of us to justify the way we feel rather than seek answers inside as if something needs to be addressed internally. The funny thing is, as Kendra Cherry points out, in the short term, these types of theories may help us to feel better And like we understand what's going on in the long term, they generally only serve to make us feel even more disempowered than we did before.
1: And there it is, right?
0: There it is. What also tends to happen is that people who engage in these types of theories also tend to not engage in activities that could actually contribute to social and political change. Things like voting and other forms of constructive activism. These types of behaviors would empower someone and help give them an actual sense of control over their lives, which is kind of antithetical to the conspiratorial mindset. Lastly, Cherry wrote about the social reasons that people are drawn to conspiracy theories. So we have epistemic, existential, and now social. Okay. These reasons tend to include feeling good and belonging to a group in opposition to something or other. Another sort of group so that they can feel like heroes while labeling the other group the enemy.
1: So kind of that like us versus them mentality. Absolutely. Okay.
0: Yeah. People will do this when they are part of a losing side. You know, sort of quote, well, the other side must have used some sort of trickery or there was some kind of conspiracy to explain why we lost. People tend to gravitate to conspiracies when they are socially and economically underprivileged, when they have experienced some kind of social ostracism, or when they are prejudiced against a so-called enemy group that they perceive as powerful. So, these social reasons tend to point to the idea that people can believe in conspiracies as a kind of defense mechanism to help maintain their own sense of identity in the face of others who are more economically and social privileged than they are. So if those who are disadvantaged in life can blame those who are more privileged for something by way of a conspiracy, they can help themselves feel better about their own socioeconomic and otherwise underprivileged situation. So people who feel that they belong to a social group that has been wronged or victimized in some way are likely to subscribe to conspiracies. So that's the article, um, which summarizes some basic research that's been done on conspiratorial thinking.
1: Well, and I did some research on some other peer reviewed articles as well. And um, I had found another meta analysis that was looking at the research studies done on conspiracies over the past um, 20 years or so. And what they found was you know, there were very few studies early on. So it was really like the mid 90s when they first started kind of looking at this in psychology and in psychological research. And there were very few studies, and then there's been kind of a, a an increase in the number of research studies looking at this over the past decade or so.
0: Do you think that has something to do with the internet?
1: You know, it's, it's possible, and it, it seems like there's kind of more people talking about conspiracy theories, and there are more documentaries on it. And I think part of that is related to the Internet, that people can maybe share these beliefs uh, more freely. They've become more mainstream than maybe they were previously.
0: Yeah, that's what I would argue.
1: So what was interesting about that meta-analysis that I saw was that a lot of the psychological research was really kind of pathologizing people who believe in conspiracy theories. So they were linking belief in conspiracy theories with such things as paranoia, having schizotypal personality traits, which people with schizotypal personality disorder tend to engage in like odd behaviors and magical thinking. But in general, the research was really looking at conspiracy theories and belief in those as indicating that there's something wrong with people. And so what I wanted to start out By saying is that a belief in a conspiracy theory is not at all uncommon. And some of the other research that I did in preparing for the episode said that there's an estimated 50% of Americans who believe in at least one conspiracy theory.
0: It would be really dangerous, I think, to pathologize that many people.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I think that just illustrates that conspiracy theories in and of themselves are not indicative of pathology necessarily. So are there some people who have mental illness who believe in conspiracy theories? Certainly. But do most people who believe in conspiracy theories have a mental illness? Absolutely not. And when we think about conspiracies, they really run the gamut. From the belief that aliens crashed in Roswell.
0: That's my favorite. I
1: knew that would be your favorite. (laughs) To JFK being murdered by the CIA and mafia. To 9-11 being an inside job. As well as the COVID conspiracies that we mentioned in the intro. And those COVID conspiracies aren't even all of them. There are countless more. Some more plausible than others. But I feel like most people I've talked to have some belief that there is some information about this virus that is being concealed from us or about the real reason it's arrived here and now. I have to admit, I at times enjoy watching conspiracy documentaries or discussing the possible, although implausible, reasons for this or that. So I tend to be one of those people, one of the 50% in the U.S. population that indulges in conspiracy theories here and there. So as I said, while I think that there are some people who believe in conspiracies that have a mental illness, the vast majority don't. But in saying that, it also makes me consider, where is the line between a conspiracy and a delusion? I've had a fair number of individuals referred to me for a competency to stand trial evaluations who believed in conspiracies, and many times they were referred for these evaluations because they subscribed to conspiracy theories. So what is the difference between a delusion, which is defined as a fixed false belief, and a conspiracy theory?
0: So just a second, let me back up for one second. So they were referred to you for competency evaluation based simply on the fact that they believed in a conspiracy theory?
1: Yes, so there's a a group in the United States and and probably elsewhere in the world as well called the Sovereign Citizens. Ah, uh, yes. And so we may do an episode about that topic at some point, but needless to say, it's a group of people who believe that the U.S. government basically went bankrupt and that they are using individual citizens as collateral in their dealings. With other governments Um, and sovereign citizens they call themselves many different names Um, most of them won't refer to themselves as sovereign citizens but in general they have a belief that many of the laws in this country don't apply to them and so when somebody goes into court because one of the things that sovereign citizens often believe is that they should not be required to pay income tax And so they don't pay income tax and then, of course, get in trouble for that. And when they go into court and tell the court that they have no jurisdiction over them, that they're sovereign, and kind of do some of the other tactics that are associated with that movement, people who are not familiar with the sovereign citizen movement can think that some of those thoughts are delusional. And so, you know, I get far fewer referrals for cases like that now than I once did. Um, I think uh, several years ago, people were not as familiar with it. And so when they heard people saying these things, they like, well, obviously there's something wrong with them. I see. But in fact, it's it's just another conspiracy theory. And um, there are tens of thousands of people in this country that subscribe to that mentality. Right. So what is the difference then between a delusion, which is defined as a fixed false belief, as I said, and a conspiracy theory? It almost feels like one of those situations where it's difficult to describe the difference, but we know it when we see it. But do we really? I have to say this is probably one of the most challenging areas for me to evaluate. How do we really know if a belief is just an overvalued extreme idea or if it's a delusion?
0: That's a fascinating question just in general, I think, even in regard to conspiracies or just on its own.
1: Right. And we can't just ask people, hey, is your belief delusional? Because no one believes their beliefs are delusional. Individuals with delusional disorder don't have insight into the fact that their belief is false. And those who really believe in conspiracy theories, I'm betting, would also not describe their beliefs as false or delusional. And I think this is something we can all probably relate to in some sense. I'm willing to bet all of us make assumptions about events, people, motivations, etc., every single day that are not backed up by facts. So let me give an example. So prior to the pandemic and the shelter-in-place orders, the traffic in Denver had gotten pretty nutty. Wouldn't you agree, David?
0: Ugh, I complained about it every day.
1: Every day, right? So let's imagine that we're driving and someone cuts us off.
0: Okay, that's a normal day.
1: Yes, normal day. So usually, and I'll be honest, I'll call the person a jerk or something worse. And make some statement about he or she thinks, you know, they're so entitled or I'll make some sarcastic comment about them being a brain surgeon who's on their way to emergency surgery or whatever. And I get really, really angry and it like ruins the rest of my drive. Right. But do I know that that person cut me off because they're a jerk or because they're entitled? No, I'm inferring all sorts of information from that one incident. And have I ever cut somebody off unfortunately yes I have (laughs) but would I consider myself an entitled jerk no because when I do it I have justifications on why it's okay so it's human nature to want to make sense of what is going on around us and I think that that's what that article the first part of that article was really speaking to right our brains don't do well with ambiguity and we would rather come up with some malevolent reason for something than no reason at all Now most of these types of situations aren't all that big of a deal because we forget about them or maybe we learn some other facts that change our opinion. But what about situations where there aren't a lot of facts available or the facts are constantly changing or where the situation seems really big or emotional or complex and the explanation seems just too simplistic? I think these are the situations where conspiracy theories really flourish. So again, how are these beliefs different from delusions? I tend to think about our beliefs occurring on a continuum. Some of our beliefs may be odd and not really rooted in reality, but they're not really very rigid or they're harmless or they're held by others in our culture. So, an example of these beliefs might be something like superstitions. If I believe it's bad luck to open an umbrella inside, which FYI, I totally believe that. <laughs> Having this belief is not likely to cause me any real problems, and there are many other people who also share this same belief. Those who don't might think I'm quirky, but it's unlikely anyone is going to call me delusional because I believe this, and at the end of the day, it probably doesn't matter that much. Now this belief, my belief about it being bad luck to open an umbrella indoors, may or may not be false, but there's really no way to prove it one way or the other. If I don't open an umbrella inside and nothing bad happens, I can say it was because I didn't open the umbrella. If I do open it and something bad happens, I can blame it on that. And even if I don't open it and something bad happens, I can just blame it on some other reason. Some conspiracy beliefs fall into this category. They may be things that a lot of people believe that don't really impact our lives and that it's not something we obsess about, or they might be beliefs that we're willing to adjust if we receive new evidence. As we move along the continuum, we get to beliefs that are more rigid. These beliefs are often referred to in the literature as extreme, overvalued beliefs. This is where terrorist ideology fits, as well as some other fervently held conspiracy theories. These beliefs are more rigidly held, and they are shared within a person's culture, subculture, or group. These beliefs are generally fixed in that people tend to adhere to them even in the face of disconfirming evidence, and they may or may not be false. So in some cases, these beliefs may be fixed and false, similar to delusions. However, they're not considered delusional because they are held by a sizable group of individuals, Extreme overvalued beliefs, and as I said, some conspiracy beliefs can fall into this category, are often the types of beliefs that are not well suited to being proven false. For example, if I say that Bill Gates' conspiracy as it relates to COVID is false, people may accuse me of just being ignorant or uninformed, or they may believe that I'm in on it in some way. They may try to convince me of their position, and any evidence that I provide to the contrary will likely be dismissed. Okay, so that brings us to delusions. Delusions, as I said, are also fixed false beliefs, but they are not beliefs that are shared or supported in the person's culture, subculture, or group. I think a lot of times people think of delusions as being ideas that are bizarre and highly improbable. You know, like believing they're from another planet or something. Yeah. And while some people do have bizarre delusions, many people with psychotic disorders have non-bizarre delusions. So paranoid delusions, um, believing that somebody is following you or believing that you're being poisoned would all be examples of non-bizarre delusions. So really what we look at when considering whether a belief is delusional or not is what the person believes So things that are more bizarre or more likely to be delusional. And also how the person believes it. Are they obsessed with this belief? Are they able to talk about other subjects or are they fixated on this one topic? Are they able to entertain alternative explanations, etc.? We also look at the social piece. Is there support for this belief in the person's community? Is this a belief held by many other people? Is having the belief causing the person to be socially isolated? We also look to see if there are other signs of mental illness. If delusions are associated with something like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, we'd expect to see significant functional difficulties. However, these problems in functioning are not likely to be present in a person who has delusional disorder. So all in all, in determining if something is a delusion or not, it can be complicated and there are many areas to consider. But at the same time, there really is that sense of, I know a delusion when I see it. And again, most of us would agree that conspiracy theories are usually not delusional. So, you know, one other thing that I was thinking about, David, is why conspiracy theories persist, even when almost none of them pan out to be true in the long run, or at least we never get any evidence to support them. And then I thought of MKUltra. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So that's actually what one of our upcoming episodes is about, so I don't want to spoil it. But let's just say this is one of those conspiracy theories that many people thought surely could not be true, and then it ended up really happening. So, you know, when we have situations like that, I think it just kind of serves to reinforce conspiracies.
0: Yeah, I agree. I have a, a few more thoughts. And to sort of get to that point, I think I'm going to wind up kind of where you are in terms of that. So... You know, some of the thoughts that I had about conspiratorial thinking and how it seems to be running wild right now has a lot to do with the general points from the article I spoke about earlier. I think that many people that I know who subscribe to conspiracy-type thinking are generally in disempowered positions, in a more general sense, and they believe, sometimes rightly, that they are being singled out, or targeted, or oppressed, for one reason or another. When you get a group of people who all feel this way, and they band together, they start to reinforce each other's thinking, and suddenly, what was a theory now becomes a so-called fact. This idea is why I don't debate with people who have very strong points of view when it comes to this kind of thing. Often, people who belong to a group that feels this way have been validating each other's thinking for so long that they've developed their own lexicon and a whole set of assumptions that first have to be brought out into the open for any kind of constructive dialogue to even begin. This can take a lot of time. What you mean when you use the term, say, quote, God can be very different than when I use this term. We have to understand the basic underlying grounding. Most people don't take the time to do this, as we have seen on the news that they often just like to show up and scream at each other, as if the ones who scream the loudest will somehow win the argument and be on the morally correct side of history. One interesting little piece of knowledge and a quote that I took away from my college years was a point that linguist and scholar Noam Chomsky once made in his work regarding the nature of the political systems that we live in. He made the point that the socio-political system works so well that there really doesn't need to be conspiracies.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. So just look closely at what's right in front of you and you'll see these things in action. One very clear example of this, and I'm about to get on my soapbox. Uh
1: Uh-oh, here we go.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One really clear example of this was when a lot of people were collectively outraged when it came to light that a number of very rich and famous people had bribed college officials in order to secure acceptance into Ivy League and other exclusive schools for their children. You know who I'm talking about. Felicity Huffman, Lori Loughlin, that whole crowd. Right. right. And how they use their wealth and privilege to secure their children basically the same advantages by paying for their admission into prestigious schools.
1: Allegedly. Allegedly. They haven't all been convicted, right? Well,
0: some of them took uh, plea bargains, Right. right? Yeah. So, that was big news. You remember that, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, on some level, I think we all knew this kind of thing happens already right in front of us and as an accepted practice.
1: You know, when the whole thing broke, the scandal broke, I was like, uh, really? Like, this, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, well, like...
0: Of course this happens. I know, what you, right? What, what, right. What? Yeah, then you know that rich people and powerful people are going to use that advantage to help out their kids? I mean, no. Who would do that, right? right? This kind of nepotism happens all the time in other ways, such as legacy advantages, access to high-priced tutors, and other resources that many others may not have, large charitable, charitable, in quotes, donations to universities, etc., And this privilege gets passed on in very acceptable and legal ways. There isn't a conspiracy here because there doesn't need to be. The system works just fine. It works blatantly to perpetuate whatever end it needs to, whether that be the continual disenfranchisement of the poor or the continual politics of distraction or the propaganda wars used to sell us things that we don't need or whatever. So the whole topic reminds me of a line from the movie Disclosure. Do you remember that movie from 1994? Not at all. Okay. So uh, it's a movie with Michael Douglas, and in it he is, and it also has Demi Moore in it. And Uh it's a movie about the sort of office politics that take place due to a sexual harassment case. Um, Only it's not what you would typically think of where the male is harassing the female. It's the other way around. Mm. So Demi Moore plays Michael Douglas's boss, and they had been previously in a relationship. And when she shows up as his boss, she basically demands um, to sort of pick up where they left off. But of course, by this time, Michael Douglas's character is married; he has children; he doesn't want to do that. And so she threatens his career. Oh. the whole reason why I bring this up because the really the movie's relatively unimportant. But there's one really great line, and it's. Um, by Donald Sutherland's character, who is the CEO of the company that both Michael Douglas and Demi Moore work for. And he's talking with Michael Douglas's character, and he makes the comment, Yeah, that's the legacy of the modern age. We have all the information, but no truth. And he's referring to different perspectives on this sexual harassment case. Like, everybody can have their own perspective. And we can have all this information about it, but we may never come to an actual objective truth. Hmm. So the internet has really exacerbated this phenomenon and can in many ways be seen as this sort of dark side of technology. It is exhausting trying to sift through the sheer amount of information we need in order to discern some kind of truth.
1: Oh, that is, I mean, that is spot on. I totally agree with that.
0: Oh, yeah. And especially recently, we we get fatigued by it. Yes, yes. Those who wield power tend to use this to their advantage. Do you remember the political term in the 90s that was spin? Yeah, totally. Okay, this referred to the manipulation of words to angle things in such a way as to create a different meaning or wash the hard truth out of it and put something more palatable in its place. Okay, so that's where that term came from. Hey, let's spin this a little bit, right? Well,
1: and now like you hear people refer to all news as being spin.
0: As being spin. Yeah. Because there's so much of it, you know, and it's all spun. A lot of people, they they make no bones about letting you know they come from a very distinctive or a very strong perspective that is rooted in a political agenda. Yeah, totally. Right. It's not just the news. This is commentary, Mm -hmm. right? So do you remember the buzzword from the 90s that was uh, psychobabble?
1: Yes, yes. Okay,
0: so you don't hear that term too much anymore, but this was a 90s term, and it was supposed to imply the use of psychological terms by someone who didn't really know what they were talking about, but would use psychological terms in order to sound like they did know what they were talking about, or to sound smart, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So in actuality, however, this was a word that was thrown around whenever someone would try to enter some kind of psychological concept as an explanation for something, into an argument. So when somebody wanted to discredit them very quickly and sort of marginalize that argument, they would say, oh, that's just psychobabble. As if, you know, the practice of psychology was somehow a pseudoscience. Right. Okay, again, this term was only used when you wanted to marginalize a psychological explanation, not actually debate it with some kind of reason. So this is kind of like an ad hominem attack. Generally, it was a way of tearing down someone's argument without actually debating it. Again, this is an example of someone using uh, information to cloud potential truth rather than reveal potential truth. And this is the dark side of the information age. It can be very, very easy to confuse people with too much information. And then we wonder why people make up conspiracy theories to explain strange events.
1: Right. It's kind of creating like the perfect conditions for that.
0: Absolutely. So I'll make one final point. You know, and then I'll be done here. Now, this gets back to, this is going to loop back around to the, the last point that you made. Part of the conspiracy problem lies in the idea that sometimes, just sometimes, conspiracies turn out to be true. I know. <laughs> uh, I think conspiracy theories have become cliche, in our country at least, because in many cases, when some truth is uncovered, we do find out that, yes, there was an actual conspiracy. Tell the men of the Tuskegee experiments that conspiracies don't exist. Right. They absolutely do exist. So it can actually be a very adaptive defense mechanism to look for a conspiracy when the official story seems simplistic or when it seems someone powerful has a lot to gain from a false narrative or a lot to lose from one. I would argue that this is human nature, as nihilistic as it may be, to look for a darker explanation instead of willingly accepting being spoon-fed some pie-in-the-sky or rosy narrative. So sometimes conspiracies are true, and I think that's the Occam's razor here. It's that simple. Sometimes it turns out that our conspiracy theories are indeed true and that we use these examples to perpetuate others.
1: So, David, so tell me what... Are there any conspiracy theories that you really believe in? (laughs) We mentioned Roswell. I mean, is that... Do you really believe that? I...
0: I'm older. I want to believe. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm fascinated by the potential of it. And I think that's what's interesting. And I think that's what captivates my attention when it comes to conspiracies. I am captivated by the potential that these things might be true. So it's not that I necessarily invest a lot of intellectual or emotional energy into a particular conspiracy theory but they're fascinating
1: yeah i i agree i mean i just i like to to do the what if like what if this really is true yeah so i'm i'm totally with you on that so what do you guys think about conspiracy theories we want to hear from our listeners are there any that you subscribe to Where do you think the line is between something being a delusion and not? You can share your thoughts with us on the discussion page of our website at psychologyafterdark.com. You can also send us an email from our webpage if you'd like to do that. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at psychologyafterdark. So please feel free to reach out to us there as well. And thank you guys for joining us for our discussion about conspiracy theories. I have a feeling this is not going to be the only episode we do on this topic because I just feel like there's more to say about it. But we hope that you guys are all staying healthy and safe out there. We love hearing from you. So please keep those emails and messages coming. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand new episode.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: The information contained in our podcast, on our webpage, and on our social media pages is for entertainment purposes only. All views expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the opinions of any entity whatsoever with which we have been, are now, or will be affiliated. The information is not meant to diagnose or treat any mental health condition. If you are experiencing mental health symptoms, we encourage you to contact a mental health provider in your community. If you are experiencing a mental health emergency, please call 911 or go to the nearest emergency room. Today's episode was written and hosted by Dr. David Morelos and me, Dr. Jessica Macono. It was edited and produced by Dr. David Morelos. The songs in this episode were "Dubstep Slow Motion" by Cool Loop and "The Arrival" by Liskus, both provided by Jamendo.